Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Finding Our Way, the Southridge Community Church member podcast designed to give you the inside scoop on life in and around our church. I want to introduce you to today's host and our lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. Uh, Really excited this week to dig into a conversation of church health and church growth uh, across at least our country here in Canada with a good friend and professor at Ambrose University, a guy by the name of Joel Thiessen. Joel, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, this is your first time in a formal conversation with us. So if you could do us the the pleasure of just kind of introducing yourself and just walking us through uh, some introductory stuff about your life and your work, and then we'll specifically get into some of your research, which I know you're super passionate about. Yeah, so I am professor of sociology at Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta, and I wear a few hats at Ambrose. Uh, alongside being professor of sociology, I am the director of the Flourishing Congregations Institute, and we'll talk about some of those things, I'm sure, in this conversation. And I'm also chair of the social sciences department, which includes our behavioral science and psychology uh, program. So multiple hats, lots of things to keep me out of trouble, which is uh, probably good. Uh, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, my father is a Baptist pastor, so I've grown up in the church, very familiar with many things in church settings and contexts, and uh, then uh, moved from Winnipeg to central Alberta, a little town called Lacombe, Alberta. I uh, lived there for high school. And then after that, went to uh, university at what is now Ambrose. I did my undergraduate degree here and spent some time out in Ontario then in Waterloo, where I did my master's and PhD in sociology and uh, looked at all kinds of fascinating things related to religion and culture in Canada. So yeah, a few things about me. And now I hang my hat in Calgary and uh, absolutely love my time at Ambrose and love living in Calgary. So to be clear, for those of us at Southridge, other than your handful of years in Waterloo, you're pretty much a, a Western Canada guy. I am pretty much a Western Canada guy. This is true. <laughs> for better or worse, listeners can determine that. Is your is your hockey team like homegrown Winnipeg or is it now uh, you know, more of Calgary centered or where do you land there? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I grew up a Winnipeg Jets fan, and then uh, in 1997 they moved. Uh, they they moved the team out of Winnipeg to Arizona. So I tried to cheer for the Phoenix Coyotes for a few years, and it just wasn't working for me. And that uh, coalesced with the time where I moved to Calgary. So then I became a Flames fan. So now I'm a Flames fan. I follow the Jets loosely. Uh, but my wife's a Maple Leafs fan, and so we um, have great rivalries in the house, I should say. Yeah, I was going to forgive you regardless of how you answered that question, but I just wanted to get a sense of the the internal conflict of interest within you. So, <laughs> yes, that's funny. yes, no, we uh, we we tracked the long Stanley Cup uh, clock, and it's a bit longer for uh, Leafs fans than it is Flames fans these days. Just a, just a bit for sure. Hey, you mentioned uh, growing up as a, a Baptist pastor's kid. I know before we get into your research that all of what you do at Ambrose and all of what you do, especially with flourishing congregations comes out of a personal heart in you uh, for the church. 
Can you just give us a bit of history or kind of context for why the church itself matters so much to you? Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. And I think, I mean, if the church lives into its fullest potential, and I know that's a big if, uh, I think the local church is an embodied expression of the best that the Christian life has to offer. It's a place to encounter right relationship with this triune God, with uh, with self and with others and with creation. And I think those kinds of opportunities for a church to help foster and facilitate those things for people, it's just a beautiful thing. It's a place where we can grow into deep fellowship with God and with others in ways that are restorative and renewing, and ultimately, I think, hopeful. And so I think my own experiences, and I look at the experiences of others in and through local churches, uh, those are some of the reasons why it matters so much to me that uh, I'd love to be part of, uh, not just as a researcher, uh, just as a member of a local church, part of churches that are creating the spaces and places for people to experience some of those uh, foundational and, and wonderful elements of the Christian life in and through the local church. I know that there's been some discussion just about the, the, the condition of the church in our country. And, and really, that's a lot of what your research has tried to focus on and to stimulate in the realization of the potential of the church. Um, just as a starting point, why would you feel that the church matters to the condition of our country, or for those listening from the states or elsewhere, to 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 the condition of society. What do you see as the church's role? Yeah, this is a question that is probably filled with lots of controversy, depending on one's perspectives and experiences of the church and of society. And so, I want to preface my response by saying that uh, people don't need to attend church to be good or moral people to contribute to society in positive ways. I write a fair bit about this. I have a, another wing of research on those who say they have no religion, a group that we call religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, in Canada and the United States. And uh, very clear in the data there that you don't need to attend church to be good or moral. You don't even have to identify as Christian to be good or moral. All those things said, I think research is fairly consistent in showing that those who attend church regularly, who are connected to a faith community, that there are a whole series of ripple effects, positive for neighborhoods and communities that they reside in, for um, charitable giving and volunteering, for a general degree of care and concern for the welfare of others. And I think churches can be a wonderful place to help foster and facilitate those things in ways that benefit society and communities and neighborhoods, all the while being mindful, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't note this, that churches have also been problematic for communities. And we've seen this in our own Canadian history and residential schools, for example, is just one of a list of examples. So we shouldn't have this naive uh, kind of fairy tale image of the role that churches play for the condition of uh, any given country. But I think there are many possible benefits that, uh, if done well and right in and through the local church, that can really benefit individuals and communities and neighborhoods and society as a whole. Yeah, I think this is where you and I have become kindred spirits and, dare I say, even friends over the last number of years, because certainly in our context, and even for me personally, 
a lot of what's driven me over the years has been what I've described as this this Gandhi gap, where Gandhi says, I, I, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ, kind of representing that so much of our society, when they see or they understand the church, they see and experience something very different from what they assume or understand to be consistent with the character of the person of Jesus. And if we could just close that gap, if we could just present in individual Christ followers and in the collective family of God, body and bride of Christ, if we could present more of the historical and and biblical Jesus to, to our world, there's this underlying sense that more of our society would run to him instead of from him and experience the the, the new life that he died and rose again to, to bring. And so uh, I appreciate you conceding the hurt and pain and kind of dark side, the shadow side of the church, but also really being a person who wants to lean into the potential of that and wanting to give your life to the potential of that, because I think that's where the, the hope of Christ and the hope ultimately of the gospel comes from is, is, followers of Jesus willing to continue to try to lean in to give Jesus and Jesus through his his redeemed people a chance to incarnate the nature of God in the world, particularly in local settings in in communities. And so I just, yeah, I want to affirm that and, and say I appreciate that about you very much. And that's certainly what uh, has made me want to hear more about uh, your research, which if I segue into that, then Joel, let's 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 dive into the main the main event of the conversation, which is this this work you do with flourishing congregations. Um, first of all, where did flourishing congregations or where did the flourishing congregation institute come from? Yeah, so it started with uh, some of my colleagues at Ambrose University as well as the University of Saskatchewan who were uh, thinking about flourishing in other institutional spaces in society, particularly in school and educational settings. And they started to think about what would this look like in church settings. And so as they started to brainstorm these ideas, they had approached me as a sociologist of religion and said, what do you think about some of these ideas? What might an institute possibly look like? And so we began to collectively brainstorm some possibilities, in particular, an awareness that there's a lot of research out there on church decline, what's wrong with the church, why are people leaving, etc. And there's a lot of valuable research there and things to learn. I've, I've contributed a fair bit myself to those conversations in Canada. But we have very little research and thinking and data on uh, where are the signs of life and vitality, particularly in the Canadian church and Canadian data. And it was those kinds of realizations and conversations that as a team, we started talking about uh, what would it look like to have a research institute dedicated to um, Canadian congregations, Canadian data, where there are signs of life and vitality that hopefully could be of value to local churches, contribute to different scholarly discussions about congregational uh, growth and decline and so forth. So those were the the underpinnings to uh, the institute that we are now actively involved in. So leading into what ultimately became a, a book that you released called Signs of Life that that kind of presented the the culmination of this phase of research that that you guys conducted can you just walk us through the process of how this kind of at the time newly established 
flourishing congregations institute started to conduct its research what did you do when you wanted to ultimately learn about and categorize or summarize these signs of of life in the church at least in canada yeah one of the things you have to do in a project an institute like this is you have to be clear about your terms and what you mean by them and how people on the ground actually use them and so uh, we wanted to speak to church leaders and practitioners on this concept of flourishing congregations uh, what do people think about that concept how do they use it and employ it in their own context how does it play itself out so uh, we spent time uh, going from coast to coast from vancouver out to halifax and we interviewed uh, leaders of self-proclaimed flourishing congregations and we wanted to know why it was that they thought they were a flourishing congregation and what they meant and we spoke to Catholic leaders and mainline Protestant leaders and uh, conservative Protestant leaders across these different regions and denominations to uh, hear more about uh, what was taking place in their, their church settings, uh, how they were defining this, this concept. Uh, we spent some time in focus groups. So you bring six to eight different church leaders together of uh, different theological traditions, maybe different contexts, larger and smaller congregations, uh, to hear how they were talking about and thinking about this topic relative to one another. Uh, we surveyed churches, uh, over 250 churches, over 9,000 respondents, uh, predominantly those who are in the pews. Uh, how are they thinking about their own church context? How do their perceptions and experiences compare with leaders in their church settings and so forth? So those are the kinds of things that uh, contributed in particular to that book, Signs of Life, and have set us up well for the kind of research that we're now doing, which are case studies, more in-depth ethnographic case studies where you spend six to eight months on the ground and you attend a bunch of services and you attend midweek gatherings uh, online or in person and you uh, observe some of the different things that are happening in different settings within a, a church. So that's a long way of saying there's many different methods to try to fully understand and assess what is happening on the ground in, uh, in different congregations across the country. And if people are wondering, uh, you said you had to be self-described as flourishing to participate in this. I, I don't know if that's what got Southridge in the door, but I, I do remember talking with you and some of your colleagues about participating and eventually uh, drove up to Waterloo, I believe it was, and uh, met with, was, was your colleague's name Arch? Yeah, that's right. That, that was Arch Wong and uh, spent yes. probably an hour or so with him going through kind of the questionnaire and and uh, talking back and forth. And so uh, for Southridge members listening who are wondering, hey, you know, were we contributing to this? The answer is yes. And in some level, were, were part of the lab rats that uh, Joel and his team were, were researching and trying to discover where some of these signs of life were. So you go through these years of research and produce this resource. I guess, bottom line, Joel, what, what would you say you learned the most or maybe found the most interesting or surprising? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different elements. I would just say at a high level, um, a lot of debate over the relationship between flourishing and numbers. Uh, like, do you need to be growing or do you need to be large in size in order to be flourishing? And I think we learned on the ground there's a lot of variation in response to that question. Uh, I think we realized that no church is flourishing in every area, despite the optics externally or internally. And at the same time, uh, it's very rare to find congregations who are floundering in every area. 
And what that suggests to us in part of our research is that there are different markers and signs of flourishing in different congregational spaces and other areas where they may not be flourishing. Uh, and there's an ebb and flow. There's a cycle to that. And I think we've seen this during the pandemic overall, where there's a uh, um, increased signs of flourishing for some churches and diminished signs of flourishing in other areas. And it's a good reminder that congregational flourishing looks different in different contexts. Uh, it, it varies based on theological setting, on organizational and polity structure, on the demographics that you find in a church, you know, age, race, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, those who live in a neighborhood or community, if you're rural or urban, all these kinds of things can, can factor into what, what transpires on the ground for congregations. So those are some overarching things. And then we dig into kind of 11 key markers or traits of flourishing and probably won't go through them all here for uh, the sake of time. But uh, we see a, a mix of organizational elements. Uh, that churches are organizations like any other kind of organization, and you have to tend to those different organizational elements that can help or um, hinder them from flourishing. There's a series of internal dynamics, things that as churches look inward and, and different things like discipleship or engaged laity or hospitable community uh, that factors into what happens in a, a congregational space. And then there's outward dynamics. What are you doing with neighbors and different partnerships and evangelism out with one's congregation, but also feedback into a congregation's flourishing? So uh, a, a very kind of high level overview of some of the things we talk about in the book, uh, but certainly stood out again from those interviews and focus groups and surveys with church leaders and congregants across the country. Hmm. That's, that's great for the church leaders who are listening in today to kind of as a takeaway process with your board or with your lead team or, or your ministry team, you know, how do you define flourishing? Would you define it? Or, or what is the relationship between your definition of flourishing and numbers? I think that's a terrific question. And, you know, to be able to hopefully be encouraged that no church is flourishing everywhere and no church is floundering everywhere. And to be able to kind of point to your own signs of life and say, hey, where in our context are we flourishing? Where are we struggling a little bit more? And maybe maybe have some dialogue as to why that is and what some of the drivers are or some of the, the hindrances are to your own church's flourishing because uh, there, there are things to learn in, in every one of our settings. I guess the, the question for me would be in those 11 traits that you describe, some organizational, some inward, some outward, would, would, would there be any like more than the rest? I don't want to call it a silver bullet, Joel, but like any, if you do one thing or if the church in Canada did one thing well that led to flourishing, what would you say it is? Yeah, this is a tough question. We're trying to wade through some of the data even right now, but uh, I mean, uh, it's so hard. I, I would say in part structures and processes, uh, a degree of intentionality. Uh, and I know that you and I have talked about these things, Jeff, in your own writing of how intentionality matters, that churches don't flourish by accident. And so they design specific systems and structures and processes that would help them uh, toward the particular end. So I would say that's that's really important. And maybe underlying that, what is the, what are the things then that you're building a structure and process around? Uh, I would say clarity about identity. Who is it that we believe we're called to be as a church? and ensuring that everything we do filters in and through that. 
that discipleship flows out of that, that our engagement in our communities are, are built around that, that we're, we're investing in leaders. So, I mean, already I'm, I'm spreading the tentacles into all these different areas, but I would say structures and processes are part of the glue that holds those things together, that these things can't just happen by accident and expect a church to flourish um, relative to any number of areas that it believes to be important. Mm-hmm. That's a great comment. And again, something for us as leaders listening to, to take away in our, our area of ministry for sure. Um, you mentioned that you've moved now or, or kind of deepened the investigative work to now starting to case study and, and, and analyze from a, a, a longer term perspective. I know that recently uh, you guys released some, some work in partnership with Alpha Canada that was specifically focused on particularly evangelism in Canada. Talk about what you learned through that project. Yeah, really fascinating study and, and partnership with Alpha there. I would say one of the things to stand out to us was that, uh, first of all, evangelism was not necessarily a priority for many different church leaders. This is based on a national survey with leaders uh, in different theological traditions right across the spectrum, but uh, that it wasn't necessarily a priority, though it was more of a priority in traditions that have a historic emphasis on evangelism, like we might imagine more conservative Protestant or evangelical traditions. But when it came down to the actual evangelism itself, uh, a lot of people seem more reticent to evangelize by telling others about their faith, and were far more comfortable by showing their faith to others. So like I'm nice to my neighbor and I hope that my neighbor asks me why I'm nice and it's be, I tell them that it's because I have Jesus in my heart and like these kinds of things versus actively telling them about the things that I believe or inviting them to church and those kinds of things. And so that was really interesting as a sociologist because um, this difference between what we might call a more passive form of evangelism of showing others versus a more assertive approach of telling others uh, is quite possibly likely to yield different outcomes when it comes to evangelism. And uh, I don't mean those terms in, in a pejorative way uh, or a demeaning way if there's more passive approaches, but I think it's reflective of the Canadian society that we find ourselves in, that people are reticent to be too offensive, too exclusive, too discriminatory towards others by telling them what we believe particularly if someone believes that they're right and another person's wrong when it comes to matters of salvation, etc. So uh, that stood out, was quite interesting in our findings. Uh, it was intrigued to see that leaders tend to overestimate their evangelistic effectiveness in their churches versus what a lot of the best data would tell us about how effective churches are when it comes to evangelism. So a bit of a gap there between perception and reality. And uh, maybe one final thing I would say that stood out in that project was how leaders had different conceptions of the aims or goals of evangelism. And as a sociologist, that that matters to me or piqued my interest anyways, because the particular aims or goals that churches are talking about evangelism and framing evangelism around will have a direct impact and relationship to the kinds of things that they're inviting members in their church to do or not do relative to evangelism, uh, the ways in which they're framing it theologically and so forth. And so it's just a good reminder that there's a lot of diversity around this concept of evangelism. This isn't a one size fits all. There's different understandings or interpretations of what that concept means and therefore what it uh, translates into practice within local context. So a few of the things we, we saw in that study. 
Yeah, it was interesting when I when I first got a hold of this resource, appreciating just how much kind of in on the ground practical ways, the reality of what gets measured gets done. And yes. how you define success in your local context is often how you as a community or as an organization pursue. And uh, so for us as leaders listening, like to, to go through that exercise as a team of how we're defining evangelism, how we're defining the outcome of effective evangelism is going to really determine what it is that, that we're pursuing as a ministry where we may have never consciously thought about that because we probably in our own context never realized that there were potentially alternative or differing definitions of what evangelism is or what the outcome could be. Yeah, it's really important to stress that. And it gets back to the earlier conversation about intentionality, uh, that churches need to intentionally articulate those things that are most important to them and to acknowledge that there will be diversity even within churches, among leaders, among members, and so forth. And I think giving the space for those kind of conversations can be quite helpful for churches who are trying to make some headway on those things that they believe to be important for them and their church at this particular time in history. For those of us listening, either Southridge members or, or leaders from other churches, uh, by this point in the conversation, you're appreciating that Joel Thiessen has expansive perspective on where the church is at, at least in our country. And so I'm curious in these final minutes, Joel, to talk maybe a little bit more specifically about kind of the condition of things coming out of the pandemic. I know you and I were talking before we hit record about where we are in Alberta and Ontario in relation to coming out of the pandemic. So we could be in different <laughs> places, but you know, we've all experienced this for almost two years here in Canada. W what are you seeing as kind of the pulse of the church right now, real time, and some of the kind of high level or greatest challenges that we're facing these days? Yeah, I think some of the experiences are varied. And so we'll see some of the more doomsday reports, whether in the media or anecdotally, et cetera, like church attendance is on the decline or people aren't attending in person and they're not even following anymore online uh, or donations are down or volunteers are down, et cetera. In some contexts, in many contexts, perhaps that is true. Uh, that is not the case in all contexts. You are finding some that are finding increased rates of giving uh, and donations or volunteerism or uh, engagement, etc. So there's a, a bit of a mixed bag there for sure. Uh, I would say a safe bet or assumption is those who are kind of marginally attached to local churches pre-pandemic are probably not particularly connected to churches uh, any longer. Uh, those who are actively involved pre-pandemic, for the most part, there are always exceptions, but for the most part, uh, continue to be tracking with uh, their local church, whether attending online, in person, etc. But uh, I think some of the greatest challenges, maybe a couple I'll just highlight. Um, I think probably the single greatest challenge for churches is articulating clearly the theological and practical need or benefit for community gatherings whether that's in person, whether that's online, uh, why is it that I would 
gather every Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever it is that a church gathers? Because I think there are some who are asking that question saying, well, I get on fine without us attending in person, right? I can do all these other kind of religious and spiritual activities and I seem to be doing okay. So I think that's a, a really important theological point. Uh, I think second, how to draw in um, laity, members of one's church to be more engaged. Uh, and to keep them engaged throughout. And I think churches that have done that during the pandemic are probably faring better. And maybe one final challenge to give attention to is kind of this, this growing polarization or tension that exists relative to the ways in which we've responded to the pandemic. And this is both toward churches themselves, right? That different churches have had different responses. Do we stay open uh, in terms of like in-person attendance? Do we go online for all of our activities? Do we do a bit of both? And there's been a lot of uh, debate and perspectives within churches on that. And I think many leaders have seen that. And then the larger conversation relative to government of what the government's role should or shouldn't be and, and whether churches should or shouldn't be seen as an essential service. And those kind of polarizations and tensions we're seeing this more in, in survey data of late is real and alive and well, so to speak, on the ground in churches. And I think church leaders need to tend to those things, to be aware that they are present in, in every church, I would say, across the country and try to delicately and um, carefully navigate those uh, those realities on the ground. Joel, there are so many of these things that I could spend a half hour on each question just digging in. I wish we lived closer, but I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with sort of two, two final questions. I guess at one level, I'm just curious with all of your perspective, how do you see the church, at least in Canada, looking differently in five or 10 years time? And then maybe related to that, it might be the same question, but it, it might not. Um, what are you seeing it's going to take to best engage the emerging generation in the future of the church in what it's becoming? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, where the limits of sociology are on fine display because we can never hold the crystal ball for definite. But I, I think with the best evidence we have maybe five years from now, um, a combination of churches that are meeting in person and online as more of the norm. I think some churches that moved to that pre-pandemic, I think that will become more of the norm. But that will introduce new questions and challenges for churches to figure out, okay, if a person is solely attending or following our services online, how do we draw them into, say, discipleship? Uh, to deeper connection to the things that we value in our local church as an expression and embodiment of who and what we are. It's almost like a, a different kind of congregant who's maybe following primarily online. And how does that differ from those who are in person? Uh, what are the different demographics that are present in those uh, different uh, groups based on social class, uh, based on family status, uh, based on age? So I think you begin to see different uh, possibilities that emerge there that I think churches will need to give some more concerted attention to five years from now in ways that maybe they haven't had to uh, up to this point in time. When it comes to the emerging generation, um, I mean, this is kind of pandemic notwithstanding. Um, inviting and including uh, younger generations in leadership is so, so important when, it, when we talk about engaging them both in the short and long term and including them at the highest level, whether it's at the board or elders, whatever sort of that leadership structure is, uh, where young people have a valued voice and presence and seat at the table. 
uh, not in a privileged way. I mean, this is important, particularly in intergenerational communities. Uh, but to know that that voices are heard and received and understood as part of this beautiful and messy thing that we call the church that brings together diverse communities uh, and, and seeking a degree of unity amidst the diversity. And I think churches that can create places and spaces for young people in meaningful and intentional ways uh, have a lot to gain both short and long term. Amazing. I know that for our team, there'd be tons to talk about just in that last that last riff. Uh, for those uh, listening in, especially who are leading ministries and leading local church contexts, uh, you've given us so much here to, to chew on and, and to process in our own context. I guess as we wrap up, Joel, any, any final kind of encouragements or challenges either to our local church's members uh, or and to the leaders uh, from other churches who are listening? when it comes to us really making the most of, of this year, especially coming out of the pandemic, kind of maximizing our impact and being able to be people in communities that flourish across our country in the year ahead. Yeah, I would say it is super important to listen well, to listen well to those in, in your congregation what are their experiences like, perspectives, etc. You don't have to agree with everything, uh, but to listen well, get a good pulse of what's happening on the ground, not just during the pandemic, but anytime. Uh, to listen well to those in the community or neighborhood around us. Uh, to listen to the data. I mean, as a sociologist, I think empirical data can be quite helpful. It's not the end all and be all. It could be a really helpful tool. So listen to that. And above all, I think it's, it's really important just to listen to God and listen to the spirit for what um, for what he's inviting us into uh, in this season of ministry in, in one's congregation and, and to be attentive to the Spirit of God, to the particularities for one's church community uh, for this time and this place. And uh, so listening well to God, to the congregation, to data, to the neighborhood, uh, I think can be a very helpful congregational practice at the best of time. Joel, thanks so much for being here. This has felt like a genie in a magic lamp experience where you've got one wish and the smart thing to do is to wish for more wishes. So I'll say I wish that we can <laughs> do this more frequently. Uh, I also wish we lived closer, but I, I hope that we can do this more frequently and, and have a revisit maybe six or 12 months from now just to find out more of some of the leading edge uh, data and research and insights that you and uh, the rest of your team at, at Flourishing Congregations have. But thanks so much for taking some time and sharing uh, this with our local church and with our Leaders Village uh, here out of Southridge. I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. My pleasure and look forward to doing it again. To all of you who are tracking with us today, uh, really appreciate you giving us the time as well. And we look forward to seeing you in this environment again next week as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everybody. Thank you.